0: First and 2 Samuel are two, probably, two of the most important books in the Old Testament. In this sense, you see the transition from the time of the judges to the monarchy. Remember, after Israel conquered the, the land under Joshua, the promised land that God had given and promised to them, etc. The land grants had been distributed to the twelve tribes. They lived a period of almost anarchy. When every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, that's a theme of the book of Judges. Then the beginning of Samuel, first Samuel starts with a mother and a dad. The mother, his name is Hannah and she's barren. She can't have children. And she prays to the Lord at Shiloh, where the tabernacle is to have a son. God is going to answer that and bless her, and her son's name is Samuel. Samuel is a judge. Samuel is a priest. Samuel is a prophet. He's a transitional figure because he will anoint two kings, Saul and David. First and second Samuel is a history of the monarchy and how the monarchy is established. But it's even more importantly this. It's a character study of three people. Samuel, Saul, and David. Each man has a character flaw. And the text focuses on that character flaw. Each man, though, has great strengths. And the text focuses on that. And it's, it's, that's how I want to teach this. I want to, I'm going to deal with the history. I'm going to deal with the family. But I want to focus on these, the character traits. Why was Samuel such an important individual? He dominates the first part of the book. And he's dominant even during the reign of Saul. He will anoint David. And then shortly he will, he will die. What's David's character flaw? What's Saul's character flaw? Why does Saul, who starts so wonderfully, end up so tragically killed on Mount Gilboa with his son by the Philistines? David, a man after God's own heart. That's why he's chosen. Terrible character flaw. And the effect of his sin and his character flaw impacts his family and impacts the whole nation. That's what we want to study. But I think it's important to get a little bit of an, of an anchor of the importance of these two books. Originally, in the Hebrew Bible, actually in the typical Hebrew Bible together today, they are one book. They're not two. But when the Greek translation of the Old Testament occurred around 250 B.C., what's called the Septuagint, they divided it into two: First Samuel, Second Samuel. We are not sure who the author is. Most people, most expositors assume that Samuel wrote most of 1 Samuel. He did not write 2 Samuel. We don't know who that was, who wrote it. But it's it's an important distinction to make. And as we begin this study of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, in addition to a study that focuses on the beginning of the monarchy in Israel, now I, I hope some of this is... Kind of clear in your mind, I hope. But let's remember that in uh, 1446 B.C., the Israelites were freed from bondage in Egypt. And then that long trek, and they received the law at Mount Sinai and so on. Under Joshua, from uh, oh, about the late, uh, late uh, fourteen 1400, late, late 1300s, seven years, the conquest under Joshua. They conquered the land of Canaan. And then when when he died, when Joshua died, we entered the period that's called the Judges. Israel was not united. And it's important to remember this in your thinking. The 12 tribes got their land grants and are dispersed all over the land of Israel at that time. But they're not united. There's no capital city. There's no king. Every tribe administers its own land. They often didn't get along. You have the tribes up in the north and the tribes in the south, particularly Judah, which is emerging as a very important tribe. The others are just kind of doing their own thing and you remember the judges, certain judges like Gideon, you remember that name? Samson, Deborah and Barak, I mean these are some of the period heroes of that period of, uh, called the judges. Samuel who comes on the scene and would be a contemporary of, of Samson is the last judge. And he, he will crown Saul as the first king. He actually will also crown David, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So <clears throat> this this these two books cover a period from 1121 B.C. until 971 B.C. Now, there are dates I want you to remember. You should memorize those. And when you get to heaven, the first question Jesus is going to ask you is, what's the time period in First and Second Samuel? And he will respond 1121 to 971 BC, and he will send, enter into the kingdom that's prepared from the foundation of the world. Those last four sentences are not true. I just made it up. So, I mean, I'm just kidding. If you don't remember them, that's all right. But it gives you a little bit of an idea. The other thing, and I'm following the introductory notes, but the other thing I want to make clear is Samuel. Samuel is a transitional figure. He is going to begin the ending of the book of Judges, of the period of the Judges. He's going to begin the beginning. and that sounds redundant, but I'll say it nonetheless. The beginning of the monarchy. In his time, he's not only a judge. he's also, He serves as a priest. And he's also called and functions as a prophet. So he's really an important person, but he's a transitional figure. You know what I mean by transitional? he's a transitional figure in this period of the of the monarchy the other thing to remember is we we'll, I'll get into this and talk about it some more but it is an important question to ask ourselves did god intend for the israelites to be ruled by king okay two of you are saying yes One of you is saying no. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is the book of Deuteronomy is the book that was written by Moses right before the new generation tried to enter the land, uh, the promised land. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, the Lord says this. When you receive a king, and he gives it, then he, listen, I'm going to talk about this later. I'm not going to do it now. He sets up a number of qualifications for the king. He's got to be a Jew. He can't go down to Egypt and amass horses and chariots. He can't amass gold and silver on himself, and he can't take foreign wives. Now you look at those three qualifications, most of the kings violate all those. The other thing about this is don't forget the king of Israel, will be at least supposed to be a shepherd king like the Messiah will be. Because the monarchy of Israel begins to prefigure the coming Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, anointed one of God. So what's happening in the monarchy, period, and especially with David, again we're going to talk a lot more about him later on, is going to prefigure the things that Jesus is going to. And Jesus is going to be the perfect shepherd king. What God is interested in is the motives and reasons why the people of Israel want to king. And we will talk about that a little bit later in our study of 1 Samuel. The other thing I want to emphasize is that in addition, these two books being 1st and Samuel being a study of the beginning of the monarchy, it's also a character study of three individuals. Samuel, followed by Saul, followed by David. And what we're, this is how I'm going to teach this when we get, as we get into this material. What God is really interested in is not only recording the beginning of the monarchy, but he's going to teach us a lot about character and leadership. God is interested in leaders who are men and women of character, integrity, the, the kinds of qualities and values and virtues that manifest and represent him. We're going to see this with Samuel. What is this teaching us about Samuel? What does he manifest? What does he model? What does he show us? And we get to Saul, because this is the question I'm going to ask as we study each one. Is there a character flaw, or maybe more than one character flaw, that's evident in this leader? Because if there's a character flaw in the leader, that will affect how he rules the people. And you're going to see this with Saul. What was Saul's major character flaw? We'll ask and answer that question. And then this is going to be down the road quite a bit. But when we get to David, because David is going to be called a man after God's own heart. David is going to be elevated. All the kings of Judah are measured against David, as you will see, if you would read 1 and 2 Kings. Now I say that because you will see very clearly in 2 Samuel, David had a massive character flaw. And it almost destroyed him and the nation. And so that's part, another aspect of this study that I want to focus on, not only the history of the monarchy and all it's telling us, which is so important for the Bible, but the Bible keeps referring back to the monarchy. The most, most of the old Testament is about the monarchy. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles are all about the monarchy. All of the prophets, four major prophets, 12 minor prophets were written during the time of the monarchy. So the monarchy is really important in terms of the Old Testament. So we're going to learn a lot about it, and it, at least I hope you want to learn a lot about it as we go through this. Now, Glenn, if you could f- uh, put those charts up on, on uh, page three of your notes, are two charts that look like this. One is kind of the division of how you can divide the, the, uh, the, the book of First Samuel. And you see the decline of Israel as a theocracy under the judges. Things are a mess with the book of Judges. And the transition, the transition in this early part of chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, those early chapters, is the contrast between Eli and Samuel. And we're going to see, this is how the Bible treats this. Let's look at Eli. He was a leader. He was, the Kipri. he was the one who sat at the gate in Shiloh where the tabernacle was. He, spiritually speaking, he was the most important person in, in Israel at that time. And then Samuel's born. And you're going to see the contrast between Samuel and Eli. And then you're going to see the contrast between Samuel and Eli's two sons. And you're going to see, oh my goodness, what a contrast. And then he comes on the scene, Samuel, excuse me, comes on the scene, grows up, and becomes this judge. And his character is almost flawless as he leads Israel and binds the nation together, preparing them for the coming of the monarchy. Glenn, the other chart is this one. If you will flip that one up. This is, again, this is in your note packet, so you would have this. This is a chronology of the period we're going to be studying. And again, these dates, you may or may not be interested in them, but these dates show a bit about Samson, because I said Samuel is a contemporary of uh, with Samson. And Samuel, who's born about 1121 B.C., and he will then anoint Saul as the king. You will see Jonathan, Saul's son, playing a major part, and then David will save Solomon to the very, very end of our study in 2 Samuel. Again, this is a nice, helpful timeline chart. Again, if you're interested, it helps you to see the overlap of these individuals and how Samuel's life, he lives a long life. And he's, he's able to see Saul and all of his problems, and he's able to see David. He crowns David, early years of David, and then he will pass away. And then this, you'll see this too, this little map that I'm going to use as we study uh, the book, 1 Samuel particularly. What I'm interested in you noting is this kind of important because this is how you would think as you begin the book of 1 Samuel. You have the land grant of Judah here, and you have this tiny little land grant of Benjamin. By the way, Jerusalem is in the land grant of Benjamin. And then you have the land grant of Ephraim. So it's Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim. Ephraim is where Samuel lives. He is born on a little town on the very west side of the land grant of Ephraim. Now again, if you're not familiar with these names, I'm hoping you're gonna become familiar with these names because that's part of how the Bible presents these individuals in locating them geographically. Okay, Are are you with me on this introductory stuff? Are you sure? Yeah. All right. I should say, are you really interested? And I may get a very divergent well, response. Well, good. Yeah. Then we're going to be studying some good things. Yeah. The way he got here, his family, yep. his mother, rather. Yep. It's just amazing. Simeon in the temple. Yeah. love that. Yep. All right. All right. That's the introduction. It took us about 15 minutes. So now let's dig into the book. So if you have your Bible or however you you do these things, uh, your phone or a computer or whatever, get out the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1. The introduction, which is really what these first couple chapters are, are focusing on the birth of Samuel. But those first two chapters focus on his mother. And what I'm interested in you observing with me as we study this, Hannah illustrates something to us. She illustrates to us how the law was to work. Because sometimes we get such an impression, or some of it is because of how things are taught as well as perhaps how we look at the Old, New Testament. But it's just the law was bad and evil. And my goodness, can't wait till we get the period of the law over so we get to the period of Jesus. Now in one sense, that's not wrong or even imbalanced because you, Jesus is the key to the whole Bible. But the law wasn't bad. Romans 7, 12, Paul writes, the law law is good. It's perfect. It's righteous. The problem isn't the law. The problem is people. (laughs) But Hannah illustrates something. Hannah illustrates a woman who understood the law and understood how the law was to function. Now if we're going to see how she responds to being barren, and that's how we'll, we'll, we'll learn about her. And then chapter, much of chapter two is what's sometimes called Hannah's song, or it's more like poetry. But, I mean, we're going to study that. Detail. I'm going to take that thing apart. When you read that, you, you reach this conclusion. Here's a woman who had a deep understanding of God, had a deep understanding of theology, and a deep understanding of what God was doing in this world. This is a woman 1121 BC, and she's an extraordinary woman, and in many ways, and I don't want to make too much of this, but in many ways, the things that Hannah says in chapter 2, what we call Hannah's song sometimes, is very comparable to what Mary says, in what in Latin is called her magnificat in the book of Luke, where she praises God for being the mother of the Messiah and all that. I mean, it's, those two women are remarkably devout women of deep understanding of God and of theology, and it's reflected in how they, what they write or what they sing or what they say in their songs. So I'm kind of preparing you for these first two chapters because although it's about sounding, the real focus is on his mother, Hannah. All right, verse 1. Now there was a certain man, Ramathaim Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. And on the map that you have in your packet, and the one that Glenn showed a, a moment ago, you can see where that town is. It's on the west side of the land grant of Ephraim. Now remember, Ephraim, the two largest land grants, when Joshua dispenses the land, is the land grant of Ephraim and the land grant of Manasseh. Manasseh's land grant is large on the west side and on the east side. Why would those two boys get the largest land grants? Population. One, and they were Joseph's. Joseph. They are the sons of Joseph. Yeah. And if you go to Genesis 46, Jacob adopted Joseph's two boys who were born in Egypt of an Egyptian mother, adopts them. And they get the blessing of the firstborn. Because Reuben, the firstborn, lost that status as the firstborn because of his adultery much earlier in in the story of the sons of Jacob. And so the two boys of Joseph get the firstborn grant. They get the double portion. So they get the largest land grants. I know I'm telling you something. You probably, oh, that's really interesting. Man, that's really important. If you really understand what's going on in the Old Testament, they're the kind of things you really should get straight. Yes. So Ephraim has a large land grant. And so the point is that Samuel's parents are Ephraimites. Aren't you glad you know that? That'll be on the quiz next week. But they're Ephraimites. They're from the tribe land grant of Ephraim. He's born on the west side. All right. His name was, I'm mean, in still verse 1. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zip, then the Ephrathite. Now, you see this a lot of times. You and I don't care, but in the Old Testament, it's really important. They trace the family lineage. and That's what the author is doing. He's tracing the family lineage of Elkanah, taking you back several generations. Because Israel... Defined when I say Israel, I mean the people, define their identity according to their land grant. I am of the tribe of Ephraim. They were proud of that. I am the tribe of Manasseh. That's how you identified yourself. And so that's how this person, the writer, presumably Samuel, is identifying who Alkanah is. He's got a generational claim to that land in Ephraim. Verse two, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. And the name of the other was Penina. Hannah, because she is mentioned first and because of how she is treated by her husband, is presumably his first wife. But she was barren. Do you know what that means, don't you? Okay. And so he took a second wife, and the second wife gave him children, Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah had no children. Verse 3. Now this man, the man is Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now there are two things that are important about verse 3. First of all, is to remind you that where was the tabernacle during the time of the judges? Because when we are beginning to study 1 Samuel, this is still the time of the judges. Samson's still alive, running around doing the things he's doing. The, the, The tabernacle was at Shiloh. And Shiloh, you can see this on your map, if you're looking at that. But Shiloh also was in the land grant of Ephraim. Here's where Samuel's born, that's Zophim, and immediately to the east is Shiloh. So Elkanah and his family would go over to Shiloh to worship. But the second thing I want you to notice is the title of God here. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. This is the first time it's used in the Bible. You do not see it in Genesis. You do not see it in Exodus. This is the first time it's used in the Bible. One There are many, many, many names of God in the Bible. But this is the first time it's used. Yahweh Saba'o, Lord of hosts. It's, It's actually kind of a military title. Because the Lord of hosts is the Lord, Yahweh, the commander of the hosts of heaven. Who are the hosts of heaven? The angels. So it's, it's 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 interesting. It it really is. It's kind of fascinating. Of all the titles of God, why does Samuel again? I think he wrote the first twenty-four chapters. Why does Samuel choose that name, or that title, if you will, for God? Well, because Yahweh Sabaoth, the Commander of the Lord of Hosts of Heaven, the military power. He's the Sovereign Lord of the Universe, the Great I Am, Yahweh. He is Elohim. I mean, you could go on and on, but Yahweh Sabaoth, that that manifests power and authority, and it's often used, truth is now going to be communicated through Samuel by Yahweh Sabaoth. This was Luther's favorite title for God. If you've ever sung Mighty Fortresses are God, Luther uses that several times in that great hymn. So those those two things I want you to observe about verse three of chapter one. I don't see, sh- I don't see that you don't see what Yahweh. Uh, mine says the Lord of hosts. It just says the Lord of yeah, the Lord of hosts. Yeah, sure. yeah my, it I. Why well just Yahweh Sabaoth? I'm giving you the Hebrew. <laughs> <Okay>. Yahweh Sabaoth <laughs> is the Hebrew of that. And I, I just wanted to make two and one, first time of choosing the Bible and second what it means. It's really it is a profoundly important title of God. And you will see it over and over. And you see a lot in the Psalms. Um, well, anyway, it doesn't matter where all you see it. We'll find out some of that. But it's because of what's going to happen here at Shiloh. Because remember, and again, I, this is so important. Shiloh is where the tabernacle is. Throughout almost all, it's, at times it's at Bethel, but for the most part it's at Shiloh. So Elkanah is, is he's a good man. He's taking his family to worship. And it, twice a year, year by year, to worship and sacrifice. Undeniably they would be going to Shiloh for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So, I mean, this it, is a very positive statement about Elkanah. He's the spiritual leader of his home, and he's leading his family. Remember, here's where they live, and this is Zophim. Zophim is going all the way east, going to Shiloh, the worship center. And the text introduces us to somebody. It actually two somebodies. The middle of verse 3, where the two sons of Eli, their names are Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And note, Lord, there's in capital, uppercase letters, that's Yahweh. Now, at this point, you don't know anything about these two guys. So in this verse, we're introduced to the importance of Shiloh, we're introduced to this important title of God, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts, and we're introduced to two figures, the sons of Eli. At this point, we don't know who Eli is, let alone who whose two boys are. But in literature, this is called a walk-on. The author is introducing us to two people. It's almost like he's saying, remember these two names. They're going to really be important for the next couple of chapters. So that's all he's doing. Shiloh, there's Eli, and they're his two boys. And they're priests of Yahweh. Now, as we get a bit into this text, we're going to start asking this question. What kind of priests were they? We'll find out. Verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, more than likely, the sacrifice that's being discussed here is the peace offering. Now, again, I I know I can over. I can overindulge here in my desire to be comprehensive and teach everything. But if you just go back to the beginning of the book of Leviticus, you have the burnt offering, chapter 1. Then you have the peace offering in chapter 3. The burnt offering is, it would be an offering that would be consumed on the altar to, to deal with sin, to atone for sin. And then the peace offering the entire entire animal is not consumed, only a very small part of it, the animal is then dispersed, and you would eat a meal. So it would be, and this is a horrible analogy, but in a way, it would be like you're having a barbecue, and you want to share the meat that you've cooked with your friends. Again, that analogy quickly breaks down, but that's the point of the peace offering. A very small portion is consumed on the altar. The rest is cooked, and you eat it. The peace offering is a peace shalom offering. Things are right with, between me and God because of the burnt offering. I've dealt with my sin. God is atoned. Atone means in Hebrew to cover. God's covered my sin. Therefore, I can sit down and enjoy a meal with my family, my friends, and with God. Because the shalom offering was an indication, a tactile, observable indication that things are right with God. You following? A shalom. Things are shalom. Things are peace between me and God and between one another. It was, it, I believe the peace offering, because they would have understood it. The peace offering is one of the most important offerings, relationally to the people of Israel. What that meant, what that indicated. For them, things are at peace with God. Things are right with God. There's nothing between him and me. There's nothing between my neighbors and me. Because we have offered our sacrifices to God. So Elkanah has made the burnt offerings. He's now in a peace offering. What does he do? Notice this. He would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to his sons and daughters, But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Which again is an indicator that she's probably his first wife. But tragically, she did not give him any children, so he took Penina. But anyway, the text says he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. So Penina got a little ribeye steak. Hannah got filet mignon. Now that's not biblical. I'm just illustrating. She got a double portion. Extreme manifestation of his, Elkanah's, love for her, Hannah. And the double portion in the peace offering was always given to those largely priests who represented God who were in favor with God Elkanah gives it to Hannah So these are these are like from from Elkanah's perspective these are like object lessons for Hannah to observe and see this is how much my husband loves me and cares for me I'm still very even though I can't give him children I am still very important to him. Do you understand? I'm trying to get you to understand this symbolic value of what is going on here and how important this would have been for Hannah. And other members of the community, because remember the peace offering was a very communal event. There were lots of people. Are, they would observe that and they would say, boy, Hannah really does love Hannah. Even as the text says, even though she didn't give him any children, he loves her. Okay? And we only got four verses done and 20 after already, but just I'm going slow. but All right. I think you're with me. Verse 6. Notice how I read from the ESV. I don't know if you're all translated quite this way, but the ESV says, and her rival. Who's her rival? Penina. 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 The text says that's Hannah's rival. In other words, look at the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the verse, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, hers and his womb. Now, let's speculate a little bit. Okay, I think we can do that. So use our creative imagination. If the Bible says that her rival provoked her grievously to irritate her, what do you think was the nature of what she said? Well, what do you think was the content of what she said to provoke Hannah, to irritate Hannah? Okay, I was not having kids. Yeah, it had to be about no kids. Ah, ha, ha, look at all my children. Look at all the ways in which God has blessed me. Poor Hannah. I mean, can't you just hear that? And irritatingly, annoyingly. And the, the tense of these verbs is this isn't just once. This is ongoing. Constant. Because listen, to some extent that's true, but not nearly likewise. In the ancient world, the most important thing for a woman to do was to give children to her husband. That's a very sexist thing to say in 2023, especially in the United States. We don't even want to talk like that. But in the ancient world, that was very, the value, and this sounds horrible. I don't know how to say it. The value of a wife to her husband was the number of children she could give him. There are lots of reasons for that. Because in an agricultural society, which, of course, this was, and in a pastoral, you know, with it's animal, animals and all of that, you needed lots of people. To help you manage your, your 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 land and your farms and your animals and all of that. So large families were the were the norm. I mean, I mean really large families, 12, 14, 18 kids. So Panina probably sat at the meal and said, no, there's Johnny and there's Joe and there's Eddie, and she just went through all of her kids. Uh, Pat, where are your kids? Can't you just see something like that happening? And how hurtful that would be. As Hannah, and this is, again, these are continuous present in the Hebrew verb. This is constant what she did to him, to to her, excuse me. Verse 7. So it went on year after year. So the author is not only at that instant when he took his family over to Shiloh. Every year this has went on. Think of how how that would wear on Hannah. Think of psychologically and emotionally and spiritually that was for Hannah. Does God not hear my prayer? Is God not interested? So now the middle of verse seven. I said at the beginning of, of our, before we started reading the text, the focus of the first two chapters is on Hannah. And the focus of the first two chapters on Hannah is a woman who understood how the law worked and understood her relationship with the creator and sovereign Lord of the universe, as well as the covenant God of Israel. He hears me. He cares about me. And I trust him. And often as she went up to the house of the Lord, again Shiloh is where the tabernacle was so she would go to the house of the Lord to the tabernacle she used she used to, she used to provoke her therefore Hannah wept and would not eat so as Penina They go, she constantly is provoking her. And the consequence is Hannah is not weeping. She's not eating. So Elkanah, her husband, he comes up alongside, puts his arm around, I'm making this up, but probably something, puts his arm around Hannah. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? And then this rhetorical question. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, now let's think about that for just a minute. What, what a wonderful, caring husband. Puts his arm around her. Why are you weeping, honey? Did you ever do that to your wife? Well, why, why aren't you eating, honey? Well, why is your heart so sad? And then this rhetorical question of astonishing comfort: "I'm more important to you. I, I, I'm, I'm better than ten sons, right, Hannah?" Well, so yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to demean Elkanah or put him down, but. And Penina is hammering her year after year after year after year on her infertility. And Elkanah comes along and says, honey, you got me. Oh, ah, yeah, you me? Isn't that enough? What's the answer to that? Well, yes, at one level, honey. This is Hannah speaking to Elkanah. But at another level, come on. Alcana, Panina is absolutely savaging me with her annoying, irritating jabs, again and again and again. And you're not doing anything about it. You are saying to me, dear, that you are more valuable, more important, and more comforting, more satisfying than ten guys, ten kids, ten boys. Again, there's just a little bit of a lack of compassion on Elkanah's part. Little bit of a lack of empathy and sympathy on Elkanah's part. Honey, you got me. Isn't that enough? You guys are looking at me like I'm speaking a foreign language or something, but One it, it begs the question who in the world would want two wives? Well, yeah, that but that's, that's not going to get into that at this point. Yeah. All right, now, you see, it's very brief, because we've only gone through eight verses, but you get a little sense of one who Elkanah is, he will be the father of Samuel, as you know, well oh, and he's he's a good man. He's the spiritual leader of his home. He takes the family to the worship center at Shiloh. Very faithful. He leads in the family sacrifice, particularly the peace offering. Dispenses double portion to Hannah is trying to comfort Hannah. He's a good man. Now the focus shifts back to the spiritual priorities of Hannah. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Now, remember, I explained that earlier. This is a reference to the peace offering. After they had shared the meal of the peace offering, you know, remember, as I explained from Leviticus 3, a portion of it is sacrificed and burnt and consumed, it, but the most of it is dispensed and eaten and shared. Now, is, is that the only sacrifice that they could eat? That's correct. Okay. That, that that's correct. That they okay. would share. And the the, the, the burnt offering, the the, the animals the totally offers. consumed. Totally consumed in the altar. So that's the only thing Yeah. That that's shared communally, figured with God and with one another. That's right. Okay. So it's a very okay. important so that so that's good. Hannah Rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. That seat uh, will later become known as the chair of Moses, but we're not there yet. But anyway, so he it's a very—it's a normal place. It's a place where he should be. Place of authority. He's sitting there. He is in effect like the high priest. Remember, you don't have the temple yet. This is just a tabernacle. So he's seated there. And what happens? She was deeply distressed, I'm in verse 10, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now, this is in the tabernacle. She, she would go into the, not the Holy of Holies, obviously, but she's in that court outside of the main part of the tabernacle. A fairly, not real large, but a fairly spacious area. And here's Elkanah. He's seated next to the entrance. It's a pretty, that's just kind of, maybe a little, odd, but it would be something like this. And he would be seeing the fire way over here. And he's just watching everybody. You see, he has his legs crossed. He was extremely fat, so he probably could cross his legs. But anyway, so you see that he's just watching everybody as they worship and pray to the Lord. Because you would go in, you've offered your sacrifices. You would go in to that part and you would pray to the Lord. That was a very. Tip, that's what the Psalms are all about. And sometimes, sometimes this would be something communally you would do. So he Eli seated at the gate, the entrance, is watching, and he sees Hannah. What is he observing? Well, the text says she's praying to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse eleven, and she vowed a vow and said, "Oh Yahweh, saw my oath, O Lord of hosts." I told you earlier that's the first. Time that is used in the Bible. It is primarily used in the prophets, and the Psalms. But she uses that. O oh Lord of hosts, Yahweh, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. That's covenant language. Remember me and not forget your servant. I will give to your servant a son. But will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, if you'll notice in verse 11 at the beginning, the text, the Hebrew text, is a vow. She is making a vow to God. I don't need to explain what a vow is. She's taking an oath. She's making a promise. But the strong word is a vow. And what is it? Yahweh Sabaoth. Look on the affliction of me, your servant. I'm barren. Year after year after year, I'm infertile. I can't have children. Look upon your servant, remember me. I told you that as I read it, that's covenant language. It's covenant language, remember me. It doesn't mean that God's forgotten who she is, but remember me and not forget your servant. Here's her request, give me a son. Now, man, we don't have a lot of time here, but I want to make sure we get all of this tied together. This woman understood the law. This woman understood the sacrificial system. This woman understood how this is supposed to work. He would offer, is the husband. He's the spiritual leader. The sacrifices are offered. The peace offering is shared. It's over. Then what do you do? Things are right between you and God. There's shalom between you and God. She goes into the tabernacle with a petition, with a request. She pours out her heart to God, asking him, using covenant language, remember me. I'm one of yours. I'm part of the covenant people of this realm. I'm asking you for something, Yahweh Sabaoth, remember me, a son. And if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. The language, I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. What she is saying there, you probably have heard this, but if you haven't, I'll, I'll summarize it. She is saying, even before she is pregnant, give me a son, and I will dedicate him using the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. That was the epitome of a, a man dedicating himself to the Lord. She's making that promise. Samuel isn't even born. He's, sexual intercourse hasn't occurred. It's going to create the embryo known as Samuel. It not even occurred yet. But she saying. My son will be a Nazarite. That's not a tribe. That's a vow. A dedicatory vow to God. You dedicate your life to him. Samson was a Nazarite. He violated every part of it. Paul took a Nazarite vow. We don't know why he did it, but he took a Nazarite vow. So she is saying, even before, I think this is the only record in the Bible where a boy, even before he's born, is committed to be a Nazarite, and it is his mother who makes that commitment. That is the epitome of dedication to the Lord, to take a Nazarite vow. I'll say more about that when we get a little further into the text. But this woman, this woman, this is really, this is really important. She understood how this is supposed to work. Pouring herself out to the Lord after the sacrifices, after sin has been atoned for, after the peace offering. And she prays to the Lord. Verse 12. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Remember, he's sitting back here at the gate. He's watching her. And she's not yelling out. She's Her mouth is moving. She's praying. He doesn't hear it. But he, only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. What's Eli's conclusion? She's drunk. You know, what, what? Now that tells us two things. Number one, this was not something normally Eli observed. A woman going in and praying to the Lord audibly, even though he didn't hear the noise, her lips were moving. So it must've been not a normal common thing. Very rare, which says something about the spiritual life of Israel at that time. And secondly, Eli' immediate conclusion is not here's a spiritually mature woman. The only logical explanation is she's drunk. Think, what? <laughs> this, probably real complex. Well, that's what I mean. He's he's reaching a conclusion. Why, why is that the only option, Eli? Why can't you say this woman? Really is devoted to the Lord. Look at her praying. Well, it's so rare to see this. It's so rare. He only well, like a lot of other things going on. She must be drunk, which is quite horrific, actually. Verse fourteen. Eli said to her, "How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you." Verse fifteen. But Hannah answered, "No, my Lord." I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now, the ESV has chosen to translate that vexation. I'll bet none of you have ever seen the word "vexation" ever, and you've never heard anyone use "vexation" in a sentence. But it's it's a it's a word that that captures uh, perhaps but is is despair. She is vexed in her soul. She's despairing. Then Eli answered. So he hears the truth about Hannah the true explanation about what was going on is he watched Hannah's lips move and all that stuff. And I, I like how he responds. Go in peace. Literally in Hebrew, Shalom. Go in peace. Shalom. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. That's what he should have done initially. But, understandably, he hears Hannah talk, he hears the explanation, and he responds correctly, Shalom. And the God of Israel grants a petition, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It also shows probably, maybe, that the prayer of the high priest at that time was um, special. Very important. And prophetic. Very important. What word would you use to summarize Hannah's new demeanor? She's no longer sad. She now has, starts with an H, ends in an E. Hope. She now has hope. I was going to say contentment. Yeah, but the, 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 it's you know hope is more of a future-oriented word. She, I mean, I she, she, she's done what the law says she should do: sacrifice, covering sin, peace offering into the tabernacle, presents her her petition to the Lord using covenant language, using that wonderful title of God, Yahweh, et etc., et cetera. Eli, oh, first challenger, Eli responds with the words, of the priest, words of comfort, words of faith. And the consequence is she now has hope. God's heard me. And I believe he's going to answer my prayer. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. You look on the map, they go to the west. And Elkanah knew his wife. The Hebrew is Yadah, meaning they had sexual intercourse, sexual intimacy. And what does the Bible say at the end of verse 19? And the Lord remembered her. In my Bible, I go up in verse 11, remember me. And in verse 19, the Lord remembered. Men, that, that little word remember is a covenant word. It, it is an aspect of the covenant relationship of the children of Israel with Yahweh. The Lord remembered. It doesn't mean He forgot. Oh, that's right. She prayed. Oh, my. Gabriel, why didn't you remind me of this? I forgot. No, that's not what it means. It's that covenant remembrance. She prayed. And in due time, verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. If you pronounce it, Samuel. It means the name of God. That's what Samuel means. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so this is a, uh, these, uh, I'm so glad we were able to get through all this, a couple minutes left here, but you, you see this marvelous illustration of this woman, desperate, in despair, presumably, seemingly hopeless. And she does what a Jewish Israelite is to do, in The Old Testament. This is how it's supposed to work. This is what you were supposed to do. You know, men, we don't have a lot of illustrations, other than, you know, the king and David and a few others. But we don't have an illustration of a common, ordinary Israelite. We do here. These are not people of wealth. These are not people of power and position. This is a common, ordinary family in Ephraim. The land grant of Ephraim. Faithful, loyal, sacrificed on the days when they're supposed to sacrifice at Shiloh, doing what they were supposed to do. And she pours out herself in faith to the Lord, and the Lord answers. And the son, who will be a Nazarite, dedicated to the Lord, is Samuel. And it's really fascinating that, of course, Samuel wrote it. He's telling us about his life. It's autobiographical. But it's telling us something. This man, Samuel, we will see as a major figure in both of these books, 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel had marvelous parents. Samuel had parents who loved the Lord, were serious about their relationship with the Lord as covenant people. And his mother especially, now, Elcano is a wonderful man too, but had his wife especially. What a woman of God she was. Is there a connection between these parents and their son? The text wants us to make that conclusion. Now, again, there's no guarantee, you know, often, I don't want to make too much of that, but the text is telling us a lot about his background. All right? Amazing quote. You, you almost got a whole chapter done, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a little surprised. I think what I'm going to do, though, it's a quarter of. Uh, let me just introduce. What's going to happen? We'll pick up with verse 21 next week. With verse 21 is how did, does Hannah? The question is: Does Hannah fulfill the goal? Does she dedicate him to the Lord? And we're we're going to see that she will, and that's what the text is going to unfold. And then, so we'll deal with that, and then in Chapter 2, and that's going to be a big part of next week's class, I want to go over her song, sometimes called Hannah's Song or Hannah's Prayer or Hannah's Poem or whatever it is. But it's a prayer that she prayed to the Lord. It is a remarkable prayer or song. So we're going to really take that apart next week as well. All right? (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to pray. Father, there is a, a special aspect of this two-volume book. In, in the original Hebrew, it's only one volume, but this is a book that is transitioning from the period of the judges after the conquest to the beginning of the monarchy. And the key figure in this, the transitional figure in this, is Samuel. What a marvelous, marvelous family he came from. Elkanah, a very godly man, a spiritual leader of his home, took his family religiously and faithfully to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice. And his mother Hannah, barren, infertile, and all of the annoying, irritating mocking that Penina gave, how hard and harsh that was. But you remembered her. She illustrates how the law was supposed to work, how all of this was to mesh together. Sacrifices, the peace offering, and then she goes in and pours out her heart to you, and you remembered her. What a marvelous illustration of faith, of doing what needs to be done to atone for sin, and a woman then who has hope. Her commitment and loyalty and love for you was manifested in her commitment to her husband and then her loyalty to you, I will promise he'll be a Nazarite. Please give me a son. And Lord, you honored that marvelous request and the the introduction of Samia now into the narrative, but we're not quite done with Hannah. Her song, her prayer, which we want to study in detail next week, will illustrate how important How important this relationship with you, how vibrant and vital this relationship with you, even characterize these Old Testament saints. So dismiss us now with your blessing. Take care of us as we go our separate ways in this incredibly hot day. May we be careful and wise as we're making our way around. We trust this to you in Jesus' name.